This week, for the first time, we have a Slate Plus segment, an extra segment that you get when you become a member. Because frankly, you becoming a member helps me and the other podcasters and writers do the work that we try to do. And this is the thing about when you join Slate Plus. You don't have to listen to the ads. No more of that. You have to subscribe to it at slate.com slash lexicon plus. If you don't subscribe to Slate Plus from now on, there's going to be this whole other segment of Lexicon Valley that only the initiated hear. So, for example, this week I'm going to do why words like important and certain are not pronounced the way they're written. A lot of you seem to think that those words are falling apart. I understand what you mean. I'm going to do it. But you have to subscribe to Slate Plus to hear the solution. Plus, yes, the clips and everything else. But you only get it when you sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash lexicon plus. Sign up now. It's just $35 for the first year. That's not much money. $35 for the first year. And again, find out more at slate.com slash lexicon plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and we're going to do it from the headlines. Mike, can I have one of those sort of, one of those old-fashioned from-the-headline sounds, probably from a movie of the 1930s? Attention, Mr. and Mrs. United States. We are going to talk about something really cool that's come up in those headlines, in those physical newspapers that I'm sure we're all going through every day. And that is the idea that F is an innovation, that F is a new sound in human affairs, that earlier humans didn't have as much F. Boy, did all of the outlets pick up on this. I'm not exactly sure why, but it is an interesting notion. And you might want to know what linguists think about it. And well, I pretend to be a linguist. And so, yeah, let's let's talk about that. And the truth is that whenever somebody who is a linguist reads a headline like that, Frankly, for a lot of us, our initial impulse is to roll our eyes. You've got to show us. One tends to be skeptical of things like that. And that's because it is a fundamental aspect of how linguists think about language to assume, because it's true in itself, that language's structure has nothing to do with what people are like, what their culture is like, that there's a randomness, that languages can be any old way in terms of how they're put together, in terms of what their sounds are like, whether you live on a mountaintop, whether you live underneath a manhole cover, whether it was 60,000 years ago, whether it was last week. And so we have to understand that language and personhood don't correlate. And part of the reason that we think about that is because we're really nervous about the idea we might have that, say, English is a real language, and then languages that aren't written and are spoken in way off places are somehow just dialects or somehow lesser. And so when you hear something like F is new, when you hear that F is something that didn't exist at first and that F comes into languages because of some physical reason that favors F. You can't help thinking, no, no, it's almost too good to be true. And you worry about a slippery slope where somebody's going to say something like having sophisticated verbs comes from having a sophisticated society. One cannot help but be skeptical. And when I first saw the headlines for that report, I thought, OK, this is going to be something where I'm going to spend the next six weeks gently telling people why 
that actually isn't true. You know, especially when it's about sounds, one cannot help but worry because there's so much that is random. If there's one lesson you learn from my hosting this show, I hope it's randomness. So much is delightfully random. For example, you know, talk about a language having or not having F. P is always interesting because you never know what languages aren't going to have P's. It can be the most random thing. And so I'm going to do something that I almost never do, which is I'm going to repeat a music clip from a really recent show. We're going to go back to the Broadway musical, The Band's Visit. And this is that same song, Welcome to Nowhere. And, you know, a little repetition never hurts, especially when it's David Yazbek's music. But the point here is that the plot hinges on the fact that these guys wind up in bait Hatikva, because they can't hear the difference as people who speak Arabic between Beit Hatikva and Petatikva. The idea is that because Arabics often don't have P's, then there was a problem in distinguishing Petatikva from Beit Hatikva. Here is the song that springs from this confusion. With a P. Where you are, this is not Petah Such a city, nobody knows it. Not a fun, not a art, not a culture. This is Petah With a B. Thank you, Pam Jackal, for reminding me that that's something I should have brought out about that show before. In any case, it's not just Arabic. You never know what's going to happen. And so there are Iroquois languages that are spoken in the northeastern United States. Think of the Finger Lakes where they make, for one listener, I'm going to say this, the Finger Lakes where, goodness gracious, the wines they make are just delicious. I mean, if you can't have an Amarone or a nice Sauvignon Blanc from South Africa, then go to New York State, go way up there, and you are going to have Finger Lakes wine that's going to make you not want to live anymore because you've had everything that is the best. So go up into the Finger Lakes, have some incredible wine. And what's interesting about Iroquoian languages is that just for no reason, they don't have P either. They don't have sounds that involve you putting your lips together. Now, that's not cultural. It's not like there's something about being a Native American up there that makes you need to keep things further back in your mouth. What in the world would that be? It's just that the roll of the dice got rid of those sounds. So I'm going to say something in Cayuga very Badly. This is how you say, I have to make 12 shirts. So this is me speaking some Cayuga. My parents would speak. No, no, they didn't. No, just like they didn't speak Albanian or Armenian. So I have to make 12 shirts. So I said that. I'm going to say that again. Now, as weird as that was, this is the thing. I never put my lips together. It's not none of that. It's just see how if I say it over and over, I develop this confidence. And for those of you who speak Cayuga, I know I sound like I'm upside down, had a stroke, and am filled with hate. That is not my intention. But you don't put your lips together at all. And that's just chance. And so when you see in the headlines, well, F is new and F comes because of something involving people's teeth. Your first impulse is to think that just could not be true. But you know, 
These days, people who know what they're talking about, who are really looking at a lot of languages, are finding an increasing number of cases where physical explanations of that kind, things having to do with the body or the climate, really do determine aspects of what language is like. Not as much as a lot of us would probably prefer, because it feels intuitive to a linguistics layman, if I may, to imagine that things like that shape what a language is like. It would be really fun if Burmese were like Burma in terms of the climate or in terms of something about Burmese people's DNA. That isn't the way it works. But there are cases where you find exceptions to the idea that language is the way it is from culture to culture, from nation to nation, from people to people, just as a matter of chance. And so here's this idea. F's are modern. Now, what what is behind this notion? Well, the idea is that you're not going to get a sound like F where you have to put your teeth on your lips. That would also include V. V and F are really variations on the same sound, F and V. So you're not going to get something where you put your dents on your labios. I'm bringing you into the terminology here. It's labiodental sounds that we're talking about. So F, V. The idea is that it's harder to do that if you don't have a certain kind of overbite. And the idea is that it used to be that the ordinary human condition was to develop a bit of an overbite. But then before food was soft, when you basically had to chew, you know, Tyrannosaurus's leg with the bones all the way through, I know there were no Tyrannosaurus, but when you just had to chew the raw meat, when you had to eat bark, whatever people were eating, well, you had to chew hard. And as a result, you ended up having the upper teeth and the lower teeth meeting in a rather linear way. That's what human skulls look like in very early societies before food got soft. After a while, if you can cook your food, you don't have to work so hard to chew it. Everything isn't like grape nuts anymore. Why does anybody eat those? I mean, unless there's some sort of colorectal problem, something like that. I have tried because they're called grape nuts and it makes you think it's going to taste like grapes. It's going to be like Welch's soda or something, except you have it for breakfast. And then you eat it and you would literally rather eat the box. I don't understand how that product stays sold. That's what all food used to be like. But once you start being able to cook your food, and the idea is that this is a Neolithic issue, so we're talking 10 or 11,000 years ago, once you have that development, then your teeth end up keeping that overbite that we're born with. And so it ends up being a matter of our dentition being more natural. Only then is it really easy to go f v. If your teeth have been pulled back because you're always eating tree stumps and, and beaver teeth, then the result is that it's harder for you to go f v. And therefore, you would predict that people whose lives still do not involve as much prepared and cooked food as ours do, would have fewer f and v sounds. So the idea is that humanity starts not particularly liking f and v, and that these days the people who have f and v are going to tend to be the ones where their lifestyles are the sorts that have developed after the Neolithic Revolution. You figure that couldn't possibly be true, but you know what? It really kind of is. And so the people who did this study, the study was headed by Damian Blasi. Damian is actually a mathematician by trade, but he is very good at coming up with these interesting language-based studies. This is not the first one. And one thing you notice is that, for example, the Inuit people, 
do not have f v sounds unless they've been in close contact with the colonizer language Danish, which does. The people who speak click languages. These are the biggest inventories of consonants in the world. There is one of those languages that has 148 consonants. It's truly amazing. So it's not that they don't like their sounds, but among all of those, including enough varieties of clicks to sink a boat, you don't have the labiodentals, oddly enough, except in the ones that have had close contact with colonizer languages or other languages nearby that happen to have them. And then Australia is a very tidy example. We're talking about, until whites came, we're talking about pre-literate cultures, hunter-gatherer and early pastoralist cultures. And f, v is very, very rare among the, depending on how you count it, about 150 indigenous languages of the Australian continent. And where they get it, is where they're in contact, for example, with English, which has them. It's really the damnedest thing. You don't expect it to pattern this way. I must admit that I had never thought about it. There's a great deal that I don't think about, but I do like to think about how the language's world's pattern. And I knew that Australia was not really F territory, but that alone just seemed like an accident. But it's interesting when you look around the world. This language spoken on the steppes of Ukraine, Proto-Indo-European, the grandfather of almost every language of Europe, plus languages of Iran and most of the ones of India. That language, as reconstructed, is many things. And one of the things that it is, is F-less. And so the F and the V come in in the later languages. And so when you go from ancient Greek to modern Greek, you get a true F. So there does seem to be a pattern. And to say that it's an accident is one, no fun. And two, perhaps not scientific. It's at the point where with the evidence that they have marshaled, the burden of proof would be upon the detractor to show why we shouldn't believe. Not that there was no such thing as F until 10 minutes ago, but that F would have been a much rarer sound in earlier stages of Homo sapiens evolution than it became later. And so F is modern. F is swanky. F is flugelhorns on the soundtrack and people talking about free love. Notice I got two Fs in there. So let's see. Flugelhorns, free love, and um, that disgusting thing from when I was a little kid. Uh, fondue. Fondue. And so F is flugelhorns on the soundtrack. Flugelhorns like and then free love and fondue. F is modern. Who knew? There was another study some years ago now, I think less than 10, that told us that tone, languages that make rich use of tone to indicate meanings of words, not just intonation, not just as in get off of there, not that kind of tone, but the kind of tone where you have to pronounce syllables on different tones to get even your basic meaning across. Caleb Everett led a study where he showed that languages that use tone in that way that perhaps is most famous from Chinese tend to be spoken where it's humid. And you don't want to believe it, but frankly, it's true. Now, what do I mean by the tone? Well, Mandarin Chinese is the classic example. They've got four tones, which as tonal languages go is really pretty moderate. But my favorite example of that, usually people start saying something about the syllable ma and the word for horse, etc. I'm tired of that. There is this interesting little poem that Chinese people like to kind of quote at you. If you get to know a person who grew up in China speaking Chinese at a certain point, 
they are going to throw this at you. And if I were Chinese, I would do it too. It's this one syllable, shu. You can imagine it's spelled S-H-I and it's pronounced shu. You can pronounce shu on four different tones. You can go shu, 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 or shu. And then that can mean about 400 billion different things, such that there's this poem. It's called The Lion-Eating Poet. And it's this whole poem that's all shu on different tones. And a Chinese person can say this poem, and to them it sounds like Dr. Seuss, whereas to me it always sounds like kind of shit, 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 because I always feel like they're telling me you will never speak this language. But you ought to hear a little bit of it. I've heard so many Chinese people happily start going at me, and I think to myself, yes, you are better than me. So, for example, here is the first part of the shit poem. Lion-eating poet in the stone den. In the stone den was a poet named Shu, who was a lion addict and was resolved to eat ten lions. And anyway, you know, unless you're Chinese, this must sound like car skidding on the road. This thing goes on and on. It's all just on Shu. And the reason they can get away with it is because they have all of these tones. Now, the quality of the poem, I don't think... Wallace Stevens or Edna St. Vincent Millay would think of it as competition, but still, technically, it's a poem about a poet who's addicted to eating lions. So that's how tone goes. And apparently, languages like that are much more likely where it's humid and hot. Now, why in the world would that be? Well, first of all, before we get to the explanation, we have to know that it does seem to be true. If you think about languages that have a whole lot of tone, take away Mandarin Chinese, which despite how many people it's spoken by is just one language. And there is something kind of tropical about tone. If I think about tone, I think either about somebody going shh, shh, shh in my face, or I start spontaneously fanning myself and going, whew, because really tone is concentrated in, for example, Southeast Asia. And, you know, you've got humidity there. You've got it in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa. And the tones are the richest in the middle band, where once again, Jesus, it is hot. And then another place where there are languages that use tone in that way is Mexico, where once again, you might find yourself in a position where you have to fan yourself. And so you think to yourself, well, why is it that a language that uses tone that richly is not spoken up near the North Pole, was not spoken in, say, Minnesota, and you're not going to find it in Albania, and that is not something that any Australian language would be caught doing. Why do you have rich tone always in a place where your air conditioner would be straining and it's humid? And, you know, the reason apparently is because it's easier to produce a richness of tones of that kind when your vocal cords are nice and, and hydrated. It all is kind of like this business of us carrying around those bottles of water today. That is one of the oddest aspects of modernity that we now think of as normal. I remember there was a time, it was a modern time, there were all sorts of terrible things going on that we're familiar with. Now, life was the same, except there wasn't as much internet, but you didn't carry around a bottle of water. It would have been unthinkable. I mean, you went to a water fountain or frankly, being thirsty was just considered rather ordinary. The bottle of water is a replacement cigarette. I swear, I use neither one and I do not walk around feeling dehydrated. Nobody in an old movie was dehydrated. Do I digress? Anyway, 
Tones are something that come more naturally when people's vocal cords are nice and wet, like everybody's today but mine. So it doesn't mean that if you have dry vocal cords, you're not going to have tones. You might, but it's more likely that that's going to creep into the way a language works if it's nice and warm and humid. And you want to say that it isn't true, but golly, the patterning of where you get that kind of rich tone around the world almost alarmingly does favor places where it's pretty damn hot. These are the sorts of things that a linguist sees these days, and they deserve to be spread far and wide. Whether or not they hold up, these are the sorts of things that show that linguistics is a science and that we are seeking pattern. And it's always important to seek pattern, even if there are reasons why sometimes you might not want to see it. Now, the skepticism will remain, and we do have to be very careful. And so, for example, there's something you could even call bullshit linguistics, as I've heard it called informally. And you have to watch out for that bullshit linguistics because it pops up everywhere. Way, way back, 19th century, Wilhelm von Humboldt. You know, he's a he's a philosopher. He's an everything of her. One of the last people who knew everything. Very well traveled for even a person of today. He had studied lots and lots of languages. This is a man of the early 1800s. And he thought, you know, he wrote very soberly in probably the most sober language in the world, German, that Chinese, as interesting as it is, and as sophisticated as it is in many ways, wasn't a language of thought that if you're talking about really high-level thought, what he really meant was that you have to be German. So it's your Hegel or your Wilhelm von Humboldt or his brother or the Brothers Grimm. That's thought. Chinese wasn't a language of thought, and he thought that because Chinese doesn't have things like hablo, hablas, habla, I speak, you speak, he, she, it speaks. You don't have endings doing that kind of work. Or Chinese isn't a language where you really have to indicate what's a subject and what's an object. You might, but you don't have any little endings that do it. You don't have to think about it all the time the way you do in Latin or Greek or German. So his idea was that, well, if you speak Chinese, you're not doing any real thinking. Now, whether or not you can wrap your head around why somebody who was familiar with Latin and German and then Chinese and also some Indonesian and Javanese thought that, still, that's the sort of thing which, with variations, you can even hear people saying today, just the other day, I was having a conversation with somebody who speaks a Southeast Asian language, and that person very innocently said, well, you know, it doesn't have grammar. And yeah, this was just a playground conversation. Who cares? But what this person meant was that it doesn't have hablo, hablas, habla, etc. So whenever you hear something like that, you think, gosh, language can make you think some things that actually don't hold up empirically. So one must be careful, especially these things that pop up in the headlines that haven't always been checked by people who are really rigorous and skeptical the way we prefer our scientific referees to be. One must be careful. Or... Here's something that you sometimes will get now from slightly superannuated sources, and you were getting it everywhere just as recently as 15 or 20 years ago. Have you ever heard that there was a big bang in the level of human cognition about 50,000 years ago? The idea was that Homo sapiens goes back a couple hundreds of thousands of years, but it was only about 50,000 years ago that there was a big bang. And that changed everything. There was this mutation in the brain that created sophisticated human language. And there you went. 
And the idea that there was this big bang was because of certain things that you can see in the remains of human beings on the peninsula that we call a continent, which is Europe. Now, that was always a really weird idea because back then people thought that Homo sapiens went back about 200,000 years. Now we know that it's about 300,000. But if Homo sapiens had started in Africa, which was already accepted by then, and we're saying that that was about 200,000 years ago, and if the Big Bang was somewhere in Spain only 50,000 years ago, then what does that say about all the other people in the world? Because the idea would have been that people had gotten to Europe from Africa and people had jumped up across the Middle East and gone through Petatikva, etc., and then gone down to that lower coast of Asia and spread all around and gone to Australia and New Guinea and all the rest. All that would have happened. And then 50,000 years ago, there's this big bang among people painting pictures of oxen and breasts in Spain or France or something like that. There's the Big Bang. Well, how about all the other people in the world? And I don't know how much people had thought this through, but the idea seemed to be that human beings got really smart in Europe and that maybe somehow this intelligence slash language gene spread back down to Africa and all the way over into India and Australia. No, no, I don't think that's how it went. The Big Bang must have happened earlier. Now, not long after that, it spread around that the Big Bang would have happened, say, 80,000 years ago, further south in Africa. And the evidence for that was engravings and things decorated with ochre dye and these shell beads where it was clear that these human beings had a conception of decoration and art. And the idea among many people is that if you are cognitively sophisticated enough to be able to decorate and to have art, then almost certainly you have some sophisticated way of communicating with other human beings. And since there was a grand exodus out of Africa, maybe 60,000 years ago, 80,000 years ago in South Africa allowed that something had happened that created intelligence among all people. But you know, even that, And that's the story that I've been giving now for about the past 10 or 15 years. Really, even that, if you reflect, doesn't quite work. My linguist friend Dan Everett has a book out a couple years ago called, appropriately, How Language Began. And he makes a case that I'm beginning to believe that language goes back even further than Homo sapiens 300,000 years ago. Language probably was invented more like 1.8 or 1.9 million years ago, and not by Homo sapiens, but by Homo erectus, which was basically a precursor of Homo sapiens. And Homo erectus was kind of little, kind of dumb, and kind of shitty, but Homo erectus got all over the world. And Dan makes the point, Homo erectus actually sailed to the little island of Flores in Indonesia. You find evidence of them there 800,000 years ago. Some of you may recognize Flores as the site of the grand old Hobbit people. I'm not talking about them, although they may have been Homo erectuses themselves. But 800,000 years ago, we know that Homo erectus is on Flores. Now, Flores is about the size of a parking lot, and more to the point, it's surrounded by really difficult currents. If you are going to wind up on Flores, either you float out there by accident on a clump of logs, or you sail, you make a boat, and you paddle your way there. And it strains comprehension to imagine that people wound up drifting off to Flores by accident and never went back home. There are various reasons for believing that these people went there on purpose. That means that Homo Erectus must have been pretty smart. If you're going to have a boat, 
you're going to go to this faraway place where you don't know what's coming, then you're imagining that something's going to go on and you have to have shared that with the people who came with you. And there have to have been some or, you know, when you get to Flores, you're just going to drop dead without leaving any progeny. And so that means that probably speech goes way back before this 300,000 year date that we've been told. I've just been told since I was a linguist that Homo sapiens has this capacity for language and that is unique to us. Well, who said? I think that Homo erectus has been being misread. And Dan makes the wonderful point that many of today's hunter-gatherers, if they just left remnants of their existence, would give us no sense as to whether or not they had language. And so you've got to watch out for that bullshit linguistics, folks. Even me. There are ways that I feel like I've been snookered and I feel like Dan Everett has been my savior in a way. So there's the reason for the skepticism. But there's something else that's really cool that's come up in the news. One of these from the headlines things. It's about ejectives. So we've done the Fs, we've done the tones, then there's also ejectives. What's an ejective? Well, it's a kind of consonant that we, with our boring European languages, don't have. And instead of me making a fool of myself by imitating ejectives, let's actually hear an ejective as used in Quechua, which is spoken up in those Andes Mountains in South America. Very interesting language in many ways, but there is a difference in Quechua between, for example, k and k. K and k. See, that's me trying to do it, and I sound like a jackass. Listen to a real guy. Now, you can talk about the smoking. He is not carrying around a bottle of water. This guy is smoking a Dunhill. So this word is for bridge. Chaka. This is for horse. Not as in, but as in horse. Listen for this word. Aka. This is move. Kuyui. This is twist. Kuyui. Twist and shout. This is tongue. Kalyu. And this is tomato sauce. I mean it. This is the word for tomato sauce. Kalyu. So you hear the difference there? Kind of a kuyui. That's an ejective. There are many languages that have that. And here's how ejectives fit into this. You'd think that it would be just random whether or not people would have those sorts of sounds in their language. But actually, of all things, it seems that ejectives happen most readily when people live in high places. The idea seems to be that when you've got some kind of high altitude, there are various advantages that it has to holding back your stop and then pushing it out abruptly like that. It seems to have something to do, for example, with dryness. There's a thesis that making those sounds helps you retain more of your water vapor. And as odd as that sounds, the simple truth is that if you look at where these ejectives are distributed in the world, then it's unmistakable that they are concentrated in high places. And so you see them in the Andes. The Andes are mountains and therefore they're high. On the island of New Guinea, there's this mountain chain that runs down the middle and all of a sudden you've got lots of ejectives. And you go to a couple of other places where there are lots of mountains. Ethiopia, we don't associate it with mountains, but there are a bunch of them there. And there you go. You've got these ejectives. Now, this case is probably not as compelling in the relative sense as the business with the tones and the business with the Fs. And various linguists have pointed out some problems. And so, for example, there's a question as to how high is high. Is it really high mountains or is it just, you know, higher than the sewer? 
or you get some problems like there are a whole lot of them in the Pacific Northwest, but not specifically if you zero in where the high mountains are and one wonders why you don't have ejectives in Tibet. But still, if you look at the map and you're thinking, well, ejectives could just be anywhere, it's not true. They are concentrated up in the clouds. And so that's one more example of where it seems as if physical conditions actually have something to do with what language is like. And you know what it brings us to? Something else that's right out of the headlines, a problem that needs to be thought about. Many people who come to the United States under desperate circumstances from Mexico and Central America don't speak Spanish. Spanish, of course, is not the native language of Mexico and Central and South America. It's an invader language. And in just Mexico and Central America alone, there are hundreds of fascinating languages spoken that have nothing whatsoever to do with Spanish. And there was an article in the Times recently, the New York Times, that mentioned, among other languages, mom. That's one language. It's just nice to know there's a language called mom. And also one called quiche. But when I call it quiche, I'm saying it like an American. Oh, yeah, there's this language, quiche. That's not how it's said. You say quiche, quiche. It's an ejective K. That's what they have. And there's nothing exotic about ejectives. You don't only use it when you're talking about kicking somebody out of the car or tomato sauce. Even the name of the language, quiche. Quiche is the language of a whole creation story of the Guatemalan people who speak it, the Popovu. And luckily, it was taken down several centuries ago. And that is in Quiche. And there are always fascinating facts about these languages that you would never think of. Baby talk, for example. Talk about what isn't as universal as you might think. Wouldn't you assume that no matter what language somebody was speaking, that baby talk would be higher? Ooh, you little kid. You would think that everybody did that. You know, even in Guatemala, baby talk is going to be like that. You know, that's actually not true. In Quiche, baby talk is lower than ordinary talk. And so it's basically, well, Gucci, Gucci, goo. And the reason for that, I don't know if that's how it sounds, but the reason for it being lower is because high talk is used for high people. So the way that you talk to the chief or somebody who's higher in status than you is to talk up like this because the height parallels how they're high up. But that means that you can't talk to a baby like this because then it makes it sound like you're talking to the chief. So when you talk to a baby, you go down here. That's one of many things that are interesting about Kiche. So we're talking about babies. Here's a direct musical connection. Did you know that there was a musical about Jackie Robinson? It doesn't surprise you that that one didn't run very long. Well, probably not. But it might surprise you to know that actually the score was not bad. And this is the best song from a show that was called The First. I believe it was 1981. And it's called Will We Ever Know Each Other? This is Lynette Perry singing. This is Jackie Robinson's wife singing to him. And I swear you could imagine that there maybe was a conversation between them. I doubt if his wife sang to him. But if she did sing, it would have been this very special song. And it uses the word babe. And I admit that that's a thin excuse for playing it right now, but this is a good song. Will we ever know each other? Will we ever know each other well enough 
got to grow and get to show and tell enough. There are a thousand things that please you. There are a thousand more that throw you. Another language spoken in this area, this is a Mexican language, it's called Chinantec. Now, for one thing, Chinantec has, depending on how you count it, seven tones. If you've got seven tones, then just the syllable ta, just say ta, it can mean I'll be prompt. Or if you use a different tone, it means I am prompt. Use a different tone, it means foot. Use a different tone, and it means we shall fight. On another tone, just we fight. Another tone for ta means work. Another tone means ladder. Use all those tones again and stretch out the ah to ah. And you get either entire, recently, weaving, we will carve, we carve, will she weave, or she will weave. So that's what tone can do for you. And that's in Chinantec. And what that means, I've heard from about four of you who have wanted me to mention this on the show. Well, I hereby mention this phenomenon. You can whistle Chinantec. There's whistled speech. You can do it across a distance. You can do it in the dark. You can whistle this language because it's so rich with tone that you don't have to speak it. So for us, whistling is just That was good. But they can really, really whistle. For example, listen to this guy. Now, he's whistling something, and you're thinking, well, oh, well, that's their music. No, they're talking. They're talking across a gorge. He just said, let's go weed my coffee plants tomorrow. Over. He just said, I'm going to call my brother Sichto when I go. Over. Over is just something somebody made up. But if you listen to those two, there's this little tone at the end. What that means is I'm done. And then somebody whistles something back. You know, if you're always skeptical, then you don't have any fun. And then you drop dead. There's some people who are always so skeptical about anything that sounds remotely interesting in the gut. And they stay that way. And then you see them one more time at a conference. And then you find out that they're underground and it seems like they never enjoyed anything except maybe their grandchildren. That is not the way life has to be. And a lot of these things are really fascinating. So I tried to give you some enjoyment and I'm going to leave you with just a query. This is from Michael Chelsea and this started preying on my mind. Let me play you something really boring. You want something dull? This is the radio series Vic and Sade. And the whole show, it was what it sounds like. The whole show is this quiet couple sitting on their porch talking. And they have this sort of son who isn't really a son. And really, that's pretty much it. And this just ran for year after year. When I used to collect radio with a friend of mine when we were younger, we used to laugh about Vic and Sade because it was the dullest radio show ever. And you know what, Michael? If you're a great fan of it, I apologize for the way I'm talking about it here. But you know what? It's still kind of boring. But linguistically, it is fascinating because it's people sitting on the porch talking, getting close to 100 years ago. And here's a little something that... 
Michael put on to me that they said. I hadn't thought about this since 1985. Listen to what Sade says in dismissal. Another customer wants a sandwich, so Rooster again puts his pig to sleep with ether and chloroform and again cuts off a chunk. Sure. See, all you need is one pig. You don't lead a very gay life of it, what with being stabbed every little while. Ish. Huh? Ish. (laughs) Okay. Comes Mr. Foster on his bicycle. Uh-huh. What's ish? I want to know from you guys if you care and you don't have anything to do. Have you ever heard anybody say ish to kind of lovingly stop you from saying something? Oh, ish. Nobody in my family said that, but I'm just one person. Was that a thing, as we put it now? Or was that just Vic and Sade? ish. Just let me know. On this show, we've been all over the world. And I know I haven't played enough musical clips and a lot of you aren't going to like the one I'm going to play. But if we've been all over the world, then you know what? We've got to hear about popsicles in Paris. And the reason for it is that at the World's Fair in 1964, they actually did a kind of mini Broadway musical. And so you would go and watch this and they actually made a cast album of it. I wouldn't recommend that album for the most part, but there is one song on it that I've always thought was delightful. It's kind of pleasantly childlike. It is musically kind of interesting, and it's also kind of a trip. You could enjoy this song having, well, I'll just say a gin and tonic. It's Popsicles in Paris, and so let's just hear how that went. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out. Go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Abby and Alana, I will miss you two immensely. And actually, Archer, season nine, in the words of Harold of Harold and Kumar. What the fuck? What the fuck? Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I'm John McWhorter. Until we